is the Plant Book Club. This is the Plant Book Club podcast. Um, I'm a fact checker, a science journalist, and the host of Plant Crimes, a podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Tegan, and I am... <laughs> I mean, I used to be a plant molecular biologist, and now I work as an editor, and I also run Plants and Pipettes, which is a plant science blog and podcast with your arm. Hey, I'm Judith. I'm a plant molecular biologist and researcher in Sweden, and I am founder of the startup company Flora L Design, where we make a pattern out of plant microscopy images on textiles. And hi, I'm Joram. I'm co-hosting together with Tegan the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Also like trained molecular biologist, but now doing all kinds of science communication, mostly plants, but not only that. Today, we are looking at Plants That Kill, A Natural History of the World's Most Poisonous Plants by Elizabeth A. Doncy and Sonny Larson. And I would describe this as a really excellent textbook. Um, it starts out with some basic biology and then quickly gets into the chemistry, natural history, cultural history of different plants that uh, can kill people and sometimes animals. And it's organized by um, organ systems. So there's a part about the cardiovascular system. There's a part about the nervous system. Um, yeah, so, and it's very textbooky. It has a lot of great pictures. It has, uh, it's kind of organized by chunks of text. There's like, you know, the classic boxes that say different tidbits. And um yeah, let's get into it. As you said, it's kind of a textbook. I, for me, I felt like it was kind of a, between a textbook and a coffee table book. Like there was enough beauty and little interesting bits in there that it wasn't dry. It wasn't like purely academic. It was definitely inspirational in many ways and like interesting and like nice to look at as well. But to discuss the book, I don't know, like, should we go through it as a as a section by section or what's the way to do this? That's a good question. I took some notes about my favorite little bits, and we can go section by section if you want. I just don't know. <laughs> Let's see. It starts out with uh, chapter one, why some plants are toxic. And um, like I said, that kind of starts out with some basic biology. I'm sure that all my plant scientists out there found this a fairly easy read. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say it's one of the parts that I, I read um, from the book. Um, I didn't manage to read the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I read the introduction and um, it was very interesting because it's it's a summary of some of the things I, I did know before. Many of them I did not know before. I mean, I'm, I never really learned botany. So um, for me, it's just like the classification and nomenclature part was already news to me. Um, and I, I almost got a PhD in that stuff. So um, <laughs> that's not, I don't know what, what it tells about my personal education, but, um, but yeah, it's a very, as you said, like, I think textbook is the right way to describe it. Like it, it really goes, gives you an overview over many things, but I also have to say it's like a good textbook. Usually when somebody give, tells me like, 
go read this textbook. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I thought also it was, it's not a typical textbook in the way that it's just full of facts. It's very short, the facts. Um, there's not many pages spent on every section, yet it's very dense in information. But I've, I thought it was like an, like an edutaining coffee table book where, that you could pick up and you could read in it and you would learn something. You would maybe not remember everything. Uh, even for me, it was very dense in information in all these parts. But um, I, I like the introduction and I like this introduction that there was an introduction both on plants and on human biology because afterwards it connects it so much. So I yeah. thought that, that was really great. And that also made me realize how much more I know about plants than I know about human biology, even though I learned that back in the days. <laughs> There was definitely a lot of new information about people for me there. And some like terrifying stuff as well. There was like on one of the pages quite early on, there's a sort of diagram of what a tongue looks like when it's not in somebody's mouth. Yeah. <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> like this has given me nightmares. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. Yeah, the tongue diagram was a lot. Another one of my favorite parts is where they talk about rabbits that have eaten deadly nightshade and then humans eat the rabbits and get poisoned. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is kind of a recurring theme throughout the book because like something eats something and then something else eats it and then that person gets poisoned among with other themes that we can continue to talk about. That's, that's definitely a good warning. Like it is a book about plants that kill and it is mentioning very commonly death of animals and humans. So if you're squeamish in that way, this is not the book for you, clearly. <laughs> like... It says it on yeah. the title. It's quite it's quite plain what's happening here, but yeah. Although it's not saying these things in like very graphic detail. Like if you I think if you listen to the average murder podcast, you will get more like gory details than if you read this book. Like it's very like the gru gr the gruesome parts are hidden behind like jargon or like um like medical descriptions at least um not not jargon, but I would say kind of a factfulness just to kind yeah. of It usually gives a lot of history also, which I thought was very interesting that it puts it in a context. It's not just plant science, but plant science. I mean, starting as early as some like 400 years before Christ. And this this is really, is really a long range until today's research, which I thought was a bit pity that in, it doesn't have references in the book. And you, I mean, being aware of how much we know by the most recent research, then doesn't become so much clear if you don't go in and look up the references or you, you would like Google, okay, where may be a reference, but that could have been really nice to see how much we have learned in the past 50 years, probably about these phenomena that are more than 2000 years old and that people have known so long. You're saying you're saying before like BC, but I think the earliest reference in there, there's a mention of some plant compound being included with like Neanderthal man discovery. Mm -hmm. It's like way back in the beginning of time. This is what yeah. how plants were potentially used medicinally. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but you're right. There's not there's not a reference list there. It is so dense with information. I I wonder how that could even be done. I think it would be like mm -hmm. chaos of numbers across the page. But um, yeah. Yeah, and they do have a further reading and online resources page in the back. So they have different books that they presumably drew from and then mm. some online databases. We can read one of those books next. 
I thought in general that it was very nice that already in the introduction they come up examples and there's always references to other parts of the book and other chapters of the book. So it puts everything very nicely in context, even though you go like plant by plant or effect by effect, what it it's affecting the brain, it's affecting uh, the cardiac system, it's affecting the muscles, whatever it can be affecting. Um, but it, it's really nicely connected so that one understands the bigger context as well. And that starts already in the introduction, which I, I thought made me also then not maybe necessarily continue to read. I was like, oh, oh, that's that's interesting. And then you jump from page 20 to 180 to look up what that was. And then you jump somewhere else. So it's an interesting, uh, interesting way of reading a book. I'm usually not so jumpy when I read the book, but it was fun. It's like part textbook part coffee table book because of the beauty and then also choose your own adventure because you can kind of like jump to a different section and oh mm -hmm. and then you have another ending there of a death of somebody or a death of an animal and <laughs> that section or yeah definitely I was in general amazed by the, all the knowledge that was put in that book. I was intrigued how long time it would take to write such a book, to look it all up. And I was really intrigued by these um, anecdotes. There was always these small text boxes that describe a specific case. It could be related to a murderer, to any kind of like accidental poisoning. And it's like, how do you at all dig out this information? Where, where do you get this from? So... I, I was really intrigued by that information that was in there. Not that it was not uh, like believable, um, but it was uh, it was interesting. It was fascinating that um, the authors put so much together. They have two different backgrounds here. One is a toxicologist, and the other one is a pharmacist. Um, so, but still, it's a lot of it's a lot of information in that book. It's like it does start from the compound. It does start from this kind of toxicology point of view. But then, from like that core, it goes anywhere. It goes to the history. It goes to the you know just like all these different kind of tales from that that center. I was gonna say I would be I would watch a documentary about the making of this book. And also, I don't know what a freelance toxicologist is. Like, how do you get your clients? Oh, like. It's like Dr. House, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Like, are you like a amateur? Like, do the police come and consult you like in detective movies? Like you're an amateur detective, but an amateur toxicologist. I don't know. I have a lot of questions about. That sounds like another TV show to happen. I mean, uh, there is Castle with like the, the writer guy being part of the, the crime team um, with his like point of view. Uh, and I mean, that could be now like the freelance toxicologist being called on scene when somebody has like weird symptoms and he always like or they always find a, a weird plant and be like oh this plant it only grows in this part of the world and how could this come here to new york and um i would watch that show as well that made up show <laughs> i mean that's that's kind of the agatha christie yeah i've been watching this british show called rosemary and time and it's about these two horticulturalists who solve murders <laughs> Dean, you're nodding you know what i'm talking about <laughs> i mean They're, they're quite, it's like middle-aged or more than middle-aged lady, I would say, right? Like these kind of... Yeah, that's my favorite genre of TV show, like old ladies who solve detective, who solve <laughs> mysteries. <laughs> it's actually remarkably popular as a genre, right? It's It happens. Yeah, yeah. And Agatha Christie comes up in this book. They they mention her as well, the fact that she was like trained as a pharmacologist or like something to do with. And that's how, that's why all of her 
the detail and the use of the poison in her novels is so well researched because she she had that background she had that training and that's just like one of the mm. the many thousands of small like little hints and clues and, and exciting bits of information that come up yeah she worked during world war one right as a nurse and it came up during her book the catcher in the rye something about rye plants i can't remember now i'm like trying to find it it was page 51 i just got a it pocket here. full of rye yeah a pocket full of rye <laughs> Hmm. Right, not a catcher in the rye. That's a completely different book. <laughs> but also about rye. And and we do love books yes. about rye. <laughs> Maybe that would be be next for us. Just like <laughs> At one point we will like run out of books that are actually about plants and we'll just be circling like things that mention a plant in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> A rose for my Valentine, and it'll be like, yeah, why not? It's got, like rose, it's a plant, it's fine. Let's, yeah, let's, why not? Okay, so what should we discuss? Some of our our favorite, most exciting bits. I the problem is I have so many different notes here, but like a lot of them are just like read more about this later, Tegan. Like go back and look into this. Same. It's really, but yeah, right. <laughs> Where it's like, hmm, must read more. Yeah, let's just go through some of our favorite. And for some of them, I wrote down the page number in my little notebook, and some I I didn't. So. Okay, so one of my favorites was no one knows why the golden bamboo lemur can eat the bamboo with cyanide and not die. Like, it's a mystery. Mm. Like, these lemurs are just eating the bamboo and no one knows why they're not keeling over. So, from an academic point of view, I kind of had that thought of, like, that can't be that hard. I can get my hands on a couple of lemurs, start feeding them like the bamboo. <laughs> like, easy publication right there. And then I was like, oh my God, these poor lemurs. Like, <laughs> my thought is to just start like homogenizing lemurs to find out how they have their magic. There were some more of this kind of experiments with with the apes. It was, they, they fed them toxins and they saw how it was distributed throughout the body and then they... They kind of injected it and had something around the leg so that it wouldn't distribute. And it's, they looked at them dying and they had like the public observing that. And you find like, oh, yep. this wouldn't be an ethical experiment to do today. <laughs> yeah, there was there was a few hints throughout the book that like some of the ways we found out how these worked or even some of the names of the plants are related to not ideal practices that happened in days of your yeah, like dumb cane. Hmm. I don't think they explained that one. They just like referenced it. I didn't get it. that. There was a couple where they like said, "Oh, as you can tell from the name XXX," and I was like, "I am I stupid? I actually can't tell from the name what is happening here." Well, I knew I knew dumb cane from like past experiences. I think they used to use it as like a torture to make you go mute. It like irritates your throat and stuff. So they would like you know, make you eat it and then you would not be able to speak. Yeah, that's horrific. So yeah, I, I wasn't really sure about that. There's also, um, I think it's it's called like Dutchman's Pipe, this uh, aristocrola. I don't know how to say that properly. But again, it's referred to as something related to the uterus. It kind of looks uterus shaped and it had this this link to the uterus. And it says, as you can tell from the name, it was used for this same usage and I was like I don't I mean something to do with the uterus but I'm not really sure if it was like yeah I don't know <laughs> they speak a little bit about like the 
the method of medicine where you use the shape of something and it looks similar to the other thing. And so you're like, oh, this must treat this. Like if the leaf is in the shape of a liver, it's like it must treat the liver. Mm-hmm. And so that was the principle of it. But yeah, I didn't get like how exactly they used it in birth. It was unclear if it was supposed to make birth easier or if it was supposed to prevent birth from happening. That's where I was not super clear. Like, Yeah. Um, the one thing I did find a little bit, um, uncertain and it might just be because of my like lack of familiarity with the human stuff and then like not absorbing those words as easily is sometimes they would mention like a malady or a type of, a type of sickness by the name. And I didn't know immediately what that was referring to. And I think it, it should be quite obvious to people, but I just have such a low understanding of, of human illness that there was a few times where I was like, I'm, I'm not really sure what that is, but yeah, I had that in general. I think to me, this um, plays a little bit into the question, like, who is this book for? Because um, there are many, like, specific words for, like, the medical, com- like, the, the chemical compounds that are mentioned, um, the the plant names, the disease names, and so on. So you, there is quite a lot of, like, specific terminology that is just there. Um, some of it, like the most important stuff, all of it is explained, but not everything is explained. So um, sometimes, yeah, it, it, you either have to do further research or it is required that you know things already, especially when it comes to like some common um, diseases or like symptoms that you might uh, might get from ingesting some plant. So um, that is something where like that was more textbooky or where I would say this is maybe for people who, have some sort of education into some of the areas that are touched here. I mean, I, I don't think many people will like understand all of the terminolo- terminology. Some will do better with like the medical stuff. Some will do better with the botanical stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, I think you need some of it. Otherwise, I might th- I might assume that some people might feel lost from all of the terminology. Yeah. I have an example here where they're talking about um, tropane alkaloid poisoning under treatment for myasthenia gravis. And I'm not sure. Sh- I, don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's gravis. It's probably bad, right? Probably grave. Like you maybe you end up in a grave. Maybe it's just like, oh, they are gravely ill. It sounds bad, but I'm not really sure what exactly. Well, gravis also means like a pregnancy, right? Let me. Oh, it does it? Quick. How do you spell it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, G-R-A-V-I-S. And myasthenia. But yeah, this is like, this is definitely the point. As you said before, like, if this had little, like, links, and I can imagine this on the internet. I'm, I'm a terrible person. I'm imagining our book, like, as an interactive source where you can just, like, click on everything and go to the next, the next source. Okay, do y'all want to know what myasthenia gravis is? Yes, please. Yeah. It's a chronic autoimmune neuromuscular disease that causes weakness in the skeletal muscles that worsens after periods of activity and, a, and improves upon periods of rest. I mean, bad. Pretty basic <laughs> knowledge, I would say. <laughs> and I think gravid is, is pregnant, gravid. So you can use caliber beans, um, which is a type of like a bean plant that's found in tropical Africa to treat that if anybody's interested. <laughs> <laughs> very Excellent. specifically but i think it does have like a kind of glossary at the back so you can also look up your either your different illnesses or your different plants or your different compounds and go from there and sort of see where the compounds are found in different plants what they're going to treat things like that which is which is quite cool 
I like that too. I thought that was a very good resource to have in there. And coming to the plants themselves, I think there's many plants that even a person without a botanical knowledge would recognize. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's written by a British and a Swedish person. So I think there's plenty of plants that we know from Europe here. Um, it's not only like tropical plants or something that is completely exotic to us. But I also, as not being a native speaker, not knowing all the names, definitely not in Latin, but also not in English, I had a, another book with me where we would have look up the, the names in Swedish then <laughs> to see. It's like, oh, yeah, that's this one. <laughs> when, when it comes to the details and you wonder, it's like, what was this and what was that one? So um, that can be a bit tricky. But if you have some interest for plants, I think many you would recognize and could be relating to. And as for my knowledge, my my mom has kind of raised me with all this. Oh, don't touch this. It's, this is toxic. And don't <laughs> eat the green in the potatoes because that's toxic. So now I, in this book, I learned now why it is, what is really happening in my body. So uh, that was interesting because lots of things came like, oh, yeah, but... Uh, that's kind of common sense or common knowledge. You don't eat this tree or that thing or, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. What was y'all's favorite deliberate murder in this book? <laughs> oh, my. That's a great question. Ooh. I like the curry. Yeah, that was my favorite, too. <laughs> that, that was the, the curry. We don't know, really. I, I was intrigued by that, and I wanted to know, but why would she feed this thing in the curry? What did she have in it again? Was it from... It's it's for the fiance, right? It was her ex fiance. Yes, no, he yes. had her ex boyfriend and his new fiance. And I think in the end she killed the ex boyfriend and the fiance was hospitalized but was okay, something like this. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what did she have in the what did she have in the curry? Do we know that? It was ground flowers. I have in my notes aconite. Yes. Oh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like monk's hood or something like this, I think. Page forty nine. Ooh, yeah. And I, I really liked this also how quick the effect was already after 10 minutes that the guy had some symptoms and it wasn't long then before he died a few hours later. We don't know why the woman survived. We discussed this actually. We said maybe she was eating more slowly and that's what saves women in general. <laughs> <laughs> There was a nice story about somebody who had distilled a liquor and they, they made like an alcohol and they drank it one time and it was completely fine. And then they drank it the next day and they became very, very ill and died. And then at their funeral, unfortunately, other people drunk their alcohol and then also became very ill. And I think some of them died as well. But that was really fascinating because the first time they drank it, it was okay because the whatever they'd put in this hadn't like diffused enough, hadn't been extracted enough by the alcohol. So it was only like after a couple of days that it got stronger and stronger. And then by the time they, well, the time of the funeral, it was really quite deadly, <laughs> which is the thing. They had to have a bunch more funerals. Yeah. And I mean, that wasn't a deliberate poisoning, but I think that was one of the cool stories. There was one about in 2011, uh, this Chinese tycoon was murdered about a business mm -hmm. dispute and they slipped heartbreak grass into his food. Yeah. And again, like when he, his food that he was eating was something that I also wasn't sure what it was. Again, it was like, I should also research this, this other alternative food source that I've never heard of. I do in line with like what Ellen is asking. I like that in the, the very first pages they're talking about, you know, in the, in the introduction, the small molecular compounds, they mention, um, 
alkaloids and they say this group is probably the most important for any aspiring plant toxicologist. And it just seems like it's also the most important for anyone who's like an aspiring poisoner as well. Like this to me was like, <laughs> mm, sure. <laughs> yes. But also. Yeah, this book could have been called How to Murder People with Plants. Yeah. How common plants in your backyard might actually murder your friends. Like it's it's very it feels very accessible. Some of these plants are like, oh, this is often an ornamental plant, or you know what, just put your potatoes in the light for a few days and then you can murder your husband. Like <laughs> all very do it yourself. Yeah, I mean this book scans all of history, and I feel like there's fewer fewer interesting murders that like I haven't heard of anyone purposefully killing anyone with green potatoes, but like it's possible. I mean, the ones that we know about were the ones that were caught. So that could well, well be that, like, you could always pass it uh, pass it off as an accident or something with green potatoes. And I think that's also the reason why and that sort of goes against the idea of using this as a DIY murder book, because I guess many of the toxic, toxic effects here are well enough known that if you get your hands on this ornamental plant to kill your, your not, uh, like, not loved one uh, anymore um that's uh yeah that you will be caught quite quickly because people will be like oh yeah this is like common poison effect from i don't know nightshade or whatever can can we discuss the the children the murdering of the children that comes up quite heavily at the last few chapters there's like um what are we on it's a foxglove maybe purple foxglove i believe um and they say that it was oh yeah in Ireland, it was used to identify a changeling. So a changeling is a fairy child that has like taken the place of a human child. And it's very much like the witch trials where you make the witch float. And if they, they do float, they're a witch. And if they drown, then it's okay they were a human. Because you give them the foxglove. And if they died, well, it was a fairy anyway. So you've killed them. But like you're feeding a child poison, <laughs> it seems... <laughs> Not ideal. And then, like, on the very next page, they talk about how um, back in ancient Egyptian times, children who cry incessantly were given extract of the poppy. So just, like, opium those yeah. children right up <laughs> to make them stop crying. That's what I took a note. I have, like, a baby who doesn't speak very well. I was like, oh, get some poppy. <laughs> guys, you're almost joking. I'm like, joking, yeah. <laughs> This goes back to our uh, botanical drinks book. You could definitely use some like tequila or something. I've heard of parents doing that, like when babies are teasing, putting tequila on their gums. This is not a recommendation. No, please, <laughs> please don't, do, don't that. do that. There will be another book of like <laughs> how to kill your baby. With like, oh yeah, the parents who did al- put alcohol in their baby's milk to, so they sleep better. Although yeah. on that theme, like there is a lesson, like an underlying red thread of if you want to poison somebody feed it to them in something that's already a little bit bitter tasting so that's you know the way to slip it in is make sure they're already eating some grapefruit or you know oh try this really great soup it's it's, it tastes a little bit bitter and by the way have some rice in as well like just yeah and there's a bunch of like horribly sad stories about lots of people dying because there's some sort of um you know like famine or food shortage and so Mm. people would move to like eating what was not everyone's first choice and in a lot of cases was actually quite toxic and so yeah there was like an example of like some sort of pea 
like PEA, mm -hmm. that people usually mix with wheat and other grains. But uh, in desperate times, it's a lot of times the only thing that survives, like a drought. Um, and so people would eat just that and it's toxic. Yeah, and that one was particularly cruel because it was like, yeah, the mixing it with the other grains prevented it from having the toxic effect, but you were also supposed to mix water in there as well. But then you're in a drought, so you don't have excess water, you don't have excess food, and you suddenly have this like really disastrous effect, which is... Yeah, the, the one that, that stood out for me, um, because I also like, I heard the story before about rye seeds, our favorite grain again, um, where you have this fungal infection that's mixed in, like that, that takes the place of the rye grain. And when you harvest it and mix that with your grain, you get like a very bitter flour. So usually you can tell, but when you're desperate enough, you are still using the flour to bake bread and then you get um, very serious poisonings and, and um, yeah, in the end, kill a lot of people by it, by, yeah, out of des of desperation of wanting to eat some bread and your your grain is spoiled by this fungus um which like in the past was a big problem by now we have like fungicides and better like quality control and this stuff that doesn't really happen anymore but used to be a major thing i thought as well for the like recommendation from a government uh, for using rhubarb leaves in World War One, where they, the government recommended that people should eat those because they had so shortage of food and then people died from that. And then in, in, in the Second World War, then uh, the ministry, they filmed an advertisement for preventing people to do that again, to eat it again. So even that was like, oh, <laughs> well, when you recommend something, you better know what you recommend. <laughs> you have to unrecommend it, which is yeah. harder. And I thought that was a general, also an interesting, an interesting part of the book that you can have different parts of a plant can be toxic or not. Um, and that was that was interesting, even in the in the case of. Uh, what is the tree called now? The one with the red berries? Yew. The, yes. the yew tree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where you only have, um, like, the, the flesh of the berries is not toxic. And then they were looking at these different animals that actually ate the berries. There was also this case with the bitter bitter taste that uh, some people mixed the, mixed the toxic part into uh, orange jam, which was already bitter, so it wouldn't mm -hmm. be... It wouldn't be visible in there. <laughs> Never eat marmalade is definitely one of the the take <laughs> of the books. Mm. I would say if somebody's like, no, really, you want to have some marmalade? Like, really, it's great marmalade. Mm. <laughs> be suspicious. Yeah, plants are really quite kind of polite in that way that they usually warn you that they're about to poison you in some way. Most of them are bitter or something. I was really impressed by that, and a lot of them are also like stimulating an upchuck reflex. So by eating the plant, your body knows to respond in that way. And I was like, okay, that's that seems decent. That's that's a good trade-off. Yeah, they talk a lot about how the point of the plants being poisonous is to get herbivores to stop eating. So, like, yeah. it's probably not going to take forever for the effects to kick in. Or, like, they don't even really have that big of a motivation to, like, kill you. They just want you to stop eating whatever you're eating. Yeah, they actually don't want to kill you, right? Because if you die, you, you know... Don't tell the other rats, I guess, or don't tell the other herbivores. <laughs> also, I learned that rats can't vomit. Did you know that rats can't vomit? Now we know. I didn't know that, yeah. 
<laughs> Amazing. I think my favorite fact um, that is from the from the last chapter of the book, where it's more about uh, beneficial compounds in in plants. Like in the end, it turns from like turning foes into friends. Um, is the idea of that a lot of the the poisons with the right dosage they're actually helpful, um, or that there's a window where they're like beneficial and beyond that they become very toxic um but a little thing that for some reason stood out to me was that um the the thing that tonic water and coffee have in common is that the main ingredients in both like coffee bean in one hand and um quinine which is part of um of the bitter in 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 tonic that this comes from the cinchona trees and these are both belonging to the same family and i i think it stood out to me because like i at one like hipster coffee place i had like an espresso with tonic water and so apparently i had like two main ingredients from the same family together Uh, unfortunately today like the quinine in the tonic water is not there in large quantities anymore so it doesn't help with malaria which it was used to like that it used to um, work against this is like Yoram you leave a review on the coffee store like great tasting coffee but does not help with malaria like <laughs> <laughs> I feel like when Ellen asked the question she meant did it taste good not like do you feel now more resilient against <laughs> diseases <laughs> yeah did it taste good <laughs> yeah it uh it's it's interesting like it's not what I usually would do to my coffee but if you want to have something coffee related but that's um different then it's a good thing i think you had it in summer and then you had like some some ice cubes in there the tonic water that was cold and then the the espresso it was a cold refreshing drink and that was quite nice you know like a stupid fact like an easy one was that like fever tree is the common name of the the tree that produces the quinine and that's the brand of like tonic water that we drink quite commonly here oh i didn't know that (laughs) No, me neither. But I also don't know the brands that you drink in UK. So okay, um, yeah, that's that was a very local fact for all our UK listeners. Sorry, <laughs> shout out. <laughs> um, what you mentioned, Yoram, this thing that like poison versus medicine. So this is the the Paracelsus guy, um, who came up. The, the quote is: "All things are poison, and nothing is without poison. Only the dose makes a thing not a poison." And I think like we've all heard that commonly, like you know, if you drink too much water, it's also going to kill you. But I, my favorite thing was that his name is Philippus Aurelius Theoprastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. And I think that's beautiful. And as, yeah, Joram, you're German. Please carry on this beautiful tra- tradition of Austro-German names. Yeah, do you think you could rename your kid? <laughs> no rename yourself like go straight for the <laughs> no like the the next door train station here is actually called after paracelsus um and i wish it would be called after his like full name it would be a fun way like every time you approach the station it's like next stop is philippus Aurelius theophrastus bombastus from home time station theophrastus so. bombastus <laughs> that's all you need <laughs> Apart from that, were there any, like, favorite people who came up for you guys during the book? Oh, this was a cool factoid. Vincent Van Gogh maybe took a medicine that made his vision tinted yellow. Yeah, very cool. I think for me it made just uh, Agatha Christie even more interesting because she had a background <laughs> where that she could put into her books. So I, I really like that fact of... Um, of knowing that she she was into that and she was working in a, in a pharmacy and knew about this. I highly recommend her 
autobiography if you haven't read it. It's like one of the mm-hmm. best autobiographies. Is it is it a plant book? Because we could read that next. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a plant book. <laughs> <laughs> She's only plant adjacent, poison adjacent. Yeah, it's a few steps removed. The story that I thought was really cool that I knew nothing about was the blood typing. Did you guys get to that? It's page 147. <gasps> oh, I thought that was so cool too. That's amazing. How did we not know this? Like, I mean... Again, sometimes I feel like people who teach human biology just assume I'm going to care about human biology because it's humans. If I knew there were plants involved, I would be invested in understanding what type of blood I have. Like, now if I'm in an accident, I don't know. Like, they have to test me. But this is... this. Okay, so the, the basic thing is that different types of blood, depending if they're A, B, or O, will kind of, like gloop together like form aggregates when you add um mixtures of different plants so some of them will um aggregate if you add lima beans the other ones will only aggregate if you add asparagus peas and this was one of like this is how they first realized so it's austrian physician carl landsteiner and this is how they realized there was different types of blood that's amazing and also it sounds a little bit like one of those experiments where you're like not really sure what you're doing and just kind of screwing around with what you have. Like <laughs> just like different types like, of blood. <laughs> just have like a couple of <laughs> vials of blood lying around. You're just like, well, let's see what's happening here. So I was imagining he had the blood already and he accidentally tipped the poison into the blood, not the other way around. But it could be, you know, it's it's hard to know. Just like a little elbow to the poison and oh, we have clumping. In a way, I sometimes felt like it's uh, it was it was good to read this. Like when you when I read about the anise things, the the small stars mm-hmm. that uh, that uh, the Chinese ones are the ones that we are eating, and I think the Japanese ones that are toxic. If you would like just go to visit to Japan, you would see them laying around. You may just pick them up and have them in your food. (laughs) Okay, this is lesson learned not to do. And even the honey, where Mm -hmm. we have honeybees that, uh, or there's honeybees in in Turkey and uh, yeah, these parts of Eastern, Eastern Europe that would eat feed on rhododendron that has toxic nectar. And then that gets into the honey and they, they, they got this kind of like mad honey that made people, well, <laughs> yeah, have all kind of um, unpleasant symptoms. But that was interesting to read that uh, these bees basically don't survive. Honeybees in, in our areas, they, they die when they eat that nectar. So it doesn't get into our honeys. They don't eat this. Um, so that was a bit of kind of like a calming thing. And maybe I will buy more local honey from Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> On the flip side, it made me glad that almost all the food I eat is like thoroughly vetted. Like mm-hmm. I feel like this book is like a, not a good foraging book. Like it's not going to make me want to like go out and try stuff that I found on the ground. Yeah, even when they when the the, the chapter about uh, skin irritation, where they would talk about botanists going around and picking different plants, and then some of them are really irritating, and uh, it's like, oh yeah, it's like you should maybe wear gloves, or they th- thought it looked like nettles, but it was something different, and they got strong reactions from that. So even there, it's uh, it's it's good to be aware that there's maybe more plants than we think that can have uh, like react or can cause reactions when up and touching as well. 
Do you, do you think overall this book made you more anxious about like the world and plants or less anxious or just like equally anxious? From my side, I think I'm I'm more fascinated about them, how different the mechanisms are and how it interacts with the with the surrounding fauna with us and everybody. Um I would be maybe more careful and uh I think I, I have a very like yeah, not not concerned attitude when it comes to plants. But if I would travel to other countries, for example, where there is more poisonous plants maybe around uh, in the wild, I don't think that I have encountered so many things here. Well, I mean, you go into the forest, you pick berries, and it's like it's it seems all pretty safe. <laughs> I haven't been attacked by anything, um, and most of the plant, even the very like digitalis or the very toxic ones. You shouldn't eat them, yes, but uh, you can also they can the, the the toxins can get into you if you touch them. And they talk about florists being in contact with them a lot, that they get irrit- irritations. But I'm I'm usually not concerned about toxic plants, and I would also put them into my garden, just making kids aware that they shouldn't be eating them. But I think that's a general thing that you teach them that they shouldn't eat what they don't know. Um, but I think the the like skin irritation and that was a bit more uh, revealing chapter where I thought oh there's more around than I thought. <laughs> it, you don't have to eat it to 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 um, have symptoms. <laughs> yeah, Tegan, have you ever encountered stinging nettles in England? I encountered a lot and it was very unpleasant. Yes, I felt angry. I felt angry that as an Australian, people always say how aggressive all of our wildlife is and. You know, then I came here and the plants are biting me and that just seems unfair. <laughs> like... <laughs> I was going to say in the United States, I've never, I've encountered poison ivy, like I've seen it, but I was taught to recognize it and I've never been stung by it. But when I lived in England for like a year, I got stung with stinging nettles like all the time, like constantly. <laughs> That's interesting because, like, yeah, we have that in German uh, Germany as well, um, quite a lot. And I remember as a kid when you would go like play in the bushes, you would just sometimes come to a patch of stinging nettle, um, and yeah, and then it would be annoying, it would hurt, and and like be very itchy for a while. But I think it's been like easily fifteen or twenty years that I haven't made that experience anymore. Um, it's just something like. When you grow up, you, you learn it. You learn it the hard way at one point, and now like I, I can recognize it. And now it's like, yeah, I'm not going to, into like these bushes here because it's full of stinging nettles. So, but Ellen is right. They're like everywhere here. It's really. I mean, my garden is filled with them. I have to pull them out every like few weeks. They just grow really fast. They they do this thing where they put runners underneath the earth and come up somewhere else. Like they're impossible to. Yeah. Rem- and they sting like. I thought they would be like slightly painful and then go away. It's worse than a bee sting. Like it, it lasts sufficient. Like it's a long time. It's and it's more surface. It's nasty. And, yeah, they're mean. They're mean plants. But they make good fertilizer. You have to collect them, then you have to ferment them, and then you have to pour them over your plants. It's good against like pests, and it's a good fertilizer. We actually want to go out yeah. like uh, next summer and pick some in the wild because um, yeah, it's very a good way to deal with pests in your garden. Um, but you have to go through a process of like, I mean, you can wear gloves and like sh- long shirts, long sleeves, and then you should be fine if you if you uh, are careful. 
But it's interesting. Basically, what you guys are all saying is that a lot of this is about familiarity. Like, if you grew up in that environment, you know this one's the poisonous one. Like, somebody's told you, your parents usually, or there's like, you know, from the community, this knowledge, and then you just don't touch those plants, you don't eat those plants, you don't put them in your eye, whatever. And a lot of these stories are people like discovering, and I'm using little like inverted comma things here, new lands, and then surprise, surprise, immediately getting poisoned because they're trying to like lick things that everybody there knows don't lick that thing, but they're just going and like shoving it in their face. Yeah, what what I learned from from this book is um, something sort of more more meta is by by the fact like. <laughs> all of these these compounds that are shown here it's like it made me appreciate how diverse the chemicals are that plants make and how very often especially in the back when it talks about like medicine and how often we still have to grow the actual plant and harvest it and extract it to get the compound because we without all our sophisticated knowledge about chemistry we can't make that compound efficiently um, at least not as well as plants can do it and yeah and if you go through it like you have all of these different types of of, of compounds in here um, that are all no problem for the plants to make but that are very like if you wanted to recreate that in a chemistry lab that would be like close to impossible to do that and it made me like really sort of appreciate this like molecular diversity that um, you don't find as much in like animals or other sort of um, species, but you find that in plants. And yeah, I quite like to learn that. Somewhere there's like a non-plant person angrily shaking their fist that you've like said, no, 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 plants are better. I mean, objectively, they're better. That's just how it is. But I mean, what crazy <laughs> compounds can animals make? Like they're all essentially like a bit of protein, a bit of fat, and that's it. I do agree, not animals, but like like bacteria, archaea, fungi, like those guys are doing I mean, crazy and impressive things. They're, they're just like almost plant species. <laughs> I mean, bacteria, Which... you take them, like you put them in a bigger cell, you get a plant cell. And uh, <laughs> fungi are just like plants that are not green, but I mean, they That's look like plants. proving that you didn't read the first chapter of the book where they specifically said <laughs> that fungi are not plants. Yes, there were so many parts where they were like... Fungi do this really cool thing, but this is a plant book, so we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) No room for you. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. That was another thing that um, I I was intrigued about because there's a lot of um, toxic fungi and we have these books of what shall you pick and what shall you not pick. And it describes some of the symptoms that you would get from these fungi. But are you aware that there's a similar book about fungi and um, toxins, how they work in detail? By the same authors? Yeah, or by, like, anybody. Oh, I I don't know, no. Let me Google fungi that kill. (laughs) (laughs) I know, by the way, of the same author, there's a new book that came out last year that's uh, Plants That Cure. So Ooh. that was also interesting. I think that maybe builds up of, uh, on the last chapter and brings that a bit further. So I have, uh, I've ordered that because I thought that it was really nice to read this book and to see like the, yeah, <laughs> the poisonous effects, but many of them, because they are so powerful, are used as well as, as um, beneficial plants or as yeah, medical plants. So I think being able to compare and see if in this Plants That Cure book, the same plants appear that <laughs> appear in this book here will be very interesting. Probably exactly the same order of plants, but like with 
just like a different perspective on them yes. it's just like yeah if you like this kills you but if you use it at the right dosage then it's it's been used in like this and that medication and the whole book is just like see book plants that kill but use less <laughs> <laughs> lower the dosage done yeah let's see yeah it's it's a good thing that we don't write books tegan um like we would be very lazy about it <laughs> just like i mean but fast quick at writing <laughs> But this definitely seems like a, a book that I would enjoy sharing with my hypothetical future children as far as like it's educational, but it's like really fascinating and it like draws in different elements. Like it's so many different angles to be interested in plants. I know it's like focused on toxins and there's some like slightly horrific things happening, but there are just so many different reasons to be invested in plants that are coming out of this book, which I think is something that we lack a little bit sometimes in in our human and animal centered world as a child i would have like or like high school student i would have loved this book um i remember um i got at one point a book about like chemistry and was like the format was very similar you had like individual chapters that were sort of enclosed stories about like one was about the chemicals in coffee um, one was about like rubber, like latex industry and all of that. And I, I love that. It had so much technical details in that, but it also told the story of like how rubber was discovered and what is the chemical process behind it. And this book is very similar to that. And I think that's like, I would have loved that as well to just like, even though I wouldn't, wouldn't have had, uh, wouldn't have understood all of the words, um, I would have still understood like the stories and like the fascination behind it. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a very good book to spark this this interest in, in, in plants. Can we read the fungi book, Ellen? Did you find one? No, I didn't find an equivalent, but I can continue looking. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. We, we have somebody with a copy right now, so <laughs> idea stated on the podcast. What are y'all's ratings? I can start out. I would rate this 4.5 out of 5 uh, rice and tipped arrows. <laughs> I'm giving five out of five poison donkeys. <laughs> I think I would also give five out of five. Um, oh no! Um, you know this it is exactly how my brain feels after having read this. It was too much information. I just give five out of five. <laughs> I, I really, I really like. I really liked how it how it was built up and just being able to have it there and being able to open it and learn something. I wouldn't recommend maybe for somebody to read it from start to end and uh, hope to remember all and every detail of it. It's very dense for that. But it's definitely a very educative and entertaining book. And also, I love this like fact of recognizing plants. You just open, I mean, every third page, probably you will find a plant that you have seen in your garden or that you have heard about. And that is really nice to relate to it. It isn't too inaccessible for just the average normal person. So I, I really, I give it five. <laughs> Yeah, I would also give it five out of five, like uh, glasses of tonic water um, with coffee or gin, depending, like maybe like three gin and <laughs> two coffee and tonic. Um, but um, 
yeah because it's it's very as you said like uh very informative um like if i would still have space on my coffee table that is not covered with like children's book about children's book about <laughs> cars i would leave this on my coffee table and every time like just pick it up and read a couple of things uh and because yeah it's it's really interesting and yeah i couldn't like I think it's already clear also from the podcast, like there's hardly anything or nothing really that we could criticize and say uh, about it where we like, oh, this was bad about the book. Because even like the technical terminology, I'm, I I rather see this as a strength. I like, I take this more serious because it has like the right words in it and it doesn't try to like um, describe it in like some more general terms. So it becomes like watered down in, in the information. So Yeah, I I really enjoyed reading it, even though like yeah, I didn't manage <laughs> to read every single page, but um, I still and uh, enjoy it and will keep it like accessible somewhere. Which brings us, I think, to the question like, what do we read next? I think who who's in charge of picking this time? Um, like we had, I don't know who has anybody got one that they want to read. I, I I have the list um, that I made with like some recommendations from a friend, and they have um, the Botany of Desire, a plant's eye view of the world by michael pollan um and i love that one i've read that one ah would you recommend it that we read it here yes i would highly recommend (laughs) it it's great yeah i mean then then very valentine's day themed too Ooh, topical i I didn't even realize i mean (laughs) yarm is such a big soppy romantic so i think uh i think that's it for this week right if you want to get in touch with us um how can they get to you guys You can find me at Ellen Earhart on Twitter um, or on the Plant Crimes podcast. You can find me on flora-l.com or on Instagram on flora.l.design. And you can find Yoram and I on plantsandpipettes.com or at plantpipettes on Twitter or at plantsandpipettes on Instagram and Facebook. And you can also now find this show on um, plantbookclub.com, um, a website that we're currently building. By the time this goes live, I hope it's all working already. Um, but there you will find now all of the episodes um, with like more information and so on. Um, and probably also a way to say hi or at least comment on the episodes. That would be very nice. So um, maybe check your podcast subscription um, that you like, link to right thing i hope it will all work out but i'm saying this now in case it doesn't um then like just there is where you find like the new subscription thing um yeah cool awesome thank you then see you all in four plus x weeks <laughs> in a month and a bit bye 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 The opening and closing music is from the album Green Ideas from Pine Vogue. You can find the music on Bandcamp where it is published under a Creative Commons license 3.0.